I don't know if you remembered Friday, but Friday, the sun was shining. The sky was blue. The saturated ground water was uh, evaporating uh, into the sky. And it was just a, a beautiful day. And I was, surprise, going for a mountain bike ride. And just as uh, at the end of the day, or later in the day, just as I'm uh, heading out, I come across a bear on the trail. This was Friday. It was very sweet. And I stopped. Some of you think I'm crazy, but it was just, uh, I, I, I've been just full of joy, uh, really, since that moment in many ways. It was just uh, beautiful. And this bear just stays there in the trail. Normally they run away and you don't get to see them, but the bear just hangs out in the trail very calmly. So I'm talking to the bear and saying, hey bear, hey bear. It's kind of what I do when I see them. And then I see her head's like on a swivel and her head's looking back behind her, not at me. And so there were three other bears behind that bear and I actually got a photo of the mama bear on the left there, and one of her adolescent cubs, almost three quarters, two thirds the size of her, and the cubs were afraid of me. And so they're like in the brush, like, you know, is it okay, mama, to cross? And she was just like the crossing guard. She's just standing there, just chill, and eventually uh, the, the, the most skittish one uh, crossed over, and it was, it was a highlight of my day. Uh, Friday, and um, it has nothing to do with my sermon. I just thought I would share that with you, other than the sweet providence of God uh, to see uh, the, the, these bears on their game trail, and it just so happens that I come up right in the few seconds or minute that they would have been crossing. I just happened to come upon them uh, on the main trail that I was on. All right. Well, one of the main characters we have looked at over recent weeks, those of you that haven't been here visiting today, or maybe you haven't been here recent weeks, one of the main characters in 1 Samuel is Saul, the first king of Israel. And Saul has a resume of, of deplorable evil in his life. Um, one of the images that sticks with me from 1 Samuel is, is Saul full of anxiety and paranoia. He, he's in his camp, he, he's, he's in his home base, and he's surrounded by his men, his soldiers, but he's got his back to the wall and he's got his hand on his sword. He, he's afraid of losing power, even when he's in a very secure place where he should be safe. He has a resume of deplorable evil. I, I don't mean mostly the anxiety and paranoia. That's just a small thing. But Saul has done really deplorable things. Maybe at the top of the list is slaughtering through one of his men, giving the order to slaughter the spiritual leaders of Israel, the priests. This is before the temple and before the cent central place of worship was Jerusalem. And so the priests were headquartered in Nob. And, and many of you that have been here, you remember 
that part of 1 Samuel where he has them killed. Uh, this would be like a, a denominational leader killing all of the pastors at a pastor's conference. It's just off the chart. One of the priests, Abiathar, escaped. Uh, we've also seen Saul freak out and lose control. And a man who has power as king, as commander-in-chief, he's used to uh, being in battle, he's used to taking life. And so we've seen him uh, try to take his own son's life, Saul. It's a deplorable thing to take your own son's life or to intend to take your own son's life. But to take your own son's life when he is gentle and faithful to you, as Jonathan was. Jonathan's in our passage today. He's faithful to his father until the end. So to kill your son, no matter what his life is like, but when your son is faithful and godly, he has a resume full of deplorable evil. And so 3,000 years later, as we read the book of 1 Samuel, one of the things that comes into our hearts and minds as Americans is, uh, did Saul go to heaven? Uh, and rather than answering that question, I'd rather give another question, which is, is 1 Samuel designed to satisfy our curiosity about the eternal destiny of Saul? And I want to suggest it is not. It is not the intent about, to, to give us the eternal destiny of Saul or Saul's sons, for that matter. It's just simply not really addressed in 1 Samuel. Matthew Henry writes this. He says, The Scripture makes no mention of the souls of Saul and his sons, what became of them after they were dead. Secret things belong not to us. So as we look today at chapter 31, I want to suggest that we should put aside questions of curiosity that the text is not addressing. So if it wasn't written to address that curiosity that we as Americans 3,000 years later might have, I want to suggest that this passage today does speak to us. It speaks to us in a way that we might not think of uh, right off the bat. How does this text relate to your life and my life? What is the common mutual human condition that we share with what is going on in this passage? And, and the part that I'm going to bring out is at the very end of chapter 31. And the common human condition that I see in this text that relates to my life and your life is, is how do I respond to the life of a person for whom the majority of their life, they, they thumb their nose at God. They have no regard for him. They, this person in our lives, or this person in the text, Saul, who we're talking about, occasionally looks to God's word, but, but mostly could care less about God's word. Uh, he, he doesn't have, I like to think of, of God's word over me and any follower of Jesus, that, that we are submissive to, subordinate to, that we look to this word to find out how God wants us to live and how we should re react and what kind of person I should be. Saul was not that kind of man generally. So how do you or I respond to that? 
And I want to suggest that the overwhelming majority of the people in our state are in that category. They don't have such a terrible resume of deplorable evil in their life like Saul had, but they're similar to Saul in that they really don't have a regard for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death, for his resurrection, for the authority of his word. And so as we work our way to the end of today's chapter, we're going to see how some people responded to Saul's death in light of his life. How do we honor people for whom, in general, they disregard God and and his word? That is actually something that today's text addresses. So hopefully you have your Bibles out or your device out. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, you could Google 1 Samuel 31, shut everything else down on your phone, beeps and notifications and volumes and sleep mode and do not wake mode and stay away from me mode, like put all those modes on. And, uh, but you can use your device for, for Samuel 31 or grab the uh, Bibles um, in front of you. Let's go ahead and take a look uh, beginning at verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them. And many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons. And they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malki Shua. So let's pause here for a moment. So what we have is the superpower, the Philistines, going after Israel and especially after the king. He's the target. He is the prize. And so he is the one that is most protected in battle. And so they aren't able to get to him by the time we get to the end of verse 2, but they were able to get to his sons. Jonathan, we have gotten to know, and his other sons, Abinadab and Malkishua. And they die in this battle. Now the reader of 1 Samuel is not surprised. In fact, we have been waiting. The careful reader has been waiting for this event. Look on the screen back in chapter 28. Uh, There was a prophecy there by Samuel. He said, the Lord has done what he predicted through me. He's saying this to Saul. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands, Saul, and given it to one of your neighbors, to David, because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites. The Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will hand over both Israel and you to the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. If you were here that week, you know that Samuel is actually dead as this prophecy is going forward. And he is speaking from the dead. And so when he says, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me, I don't think he is referring particularly to heaven He is referring to death, and they will be with me. The Lord also will hand over the army of Israel to the Philistines. This is a true but discouraging prophecy. So the reader has been anticipating what happens in chapter 31 for some time. Even earlier than chapter 28, we were expecting this situation. Matthew Henry writes this, he says, Providence so orders it that he, Jonathan, 
falls in the common fate of his family, though he never involved himself in the guilt of it. This is difficult. His sons die. We're told through Samuel, the Lord is speaking through Samuel, that your sons are going to die because of your disobedience, Saul. And the reader experiences this death of those sons in verses 1 and 2. We can choose our sins, but we are not free to choose the consequences of our sins. And the consequences of Saul's sins are massive, and his family is eliminated here in chapter 31, mostly. Let's come back to our text. Uh, We're at verse 3. So the fighting grew fierce around Saul. They got his sons, but not him yet. And when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. So this is an ancient battle. Uh, no, no, No tanks. Uh, And they couldn't get close to Saul. He has a lot of men around him. But the archers could get close enough that their arrows have critically wounded him. They know, and Saul knows, he is not going to survive the arrows that have come literally into his body. Continuing in verse 4, Saul says to his armor bearer, This is the man who is designated to protect Saul at all costs. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. Let's pause here for just a moment, and I want to ask and answer the question, why? Didn't his armor bearer do what Saul asked? And we don't have a specific answer in chapter 31, but I think a a careful reading of the book of 1 Samuel, there is an answer that I want to put forward. You might remember, you may have forgotten, that David had many opportunities to take the life of Saul and to assume the throne. Did he, take, did he avail himself to those opportunities and take his life? No, he did not. He did not. And the reason for that is part of the law, part of at the core of being a godly Israelite, is Exodus twenty two twenty eight. You shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You don't speak in a blasphemous or cursing sort of way to the Lord, to the covenant-keeping God of Israel, and you don't do that to any of your rulers. You don't do that to your king. And so many people, many of David's friends are saying, hey, this is your opportunity. Look at what Saul has done. Let's stop this evil. Take him out. And David doesn't. And so I want to suggest that we don't know who David's armor bearer uh, is at this moment. He's not named. But I want to suggest he's someone who will not take the life of Saul, even though his life is about to end. We're told in verse 3, he is critically wounded by the Philistines. Uh, the Philistines' uh, arrows and, and so on. So let's continue on. We're, we're um, in the middle of verse 4. So Saul took 
his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together the same day. Precisely what was prophesied. Let's pause here again. So this, there's a long history in both modern warfare and in ancient warfare of not allowing yourself to be taken by the enemy and to do this, to take your own life even, rather than being taken by the enemy. Um, You're familiar with that. What would I say, what would a spiritual leader say to someone, whether they are a warrior or whether they are not, about taking their own life. I would say, on the authority of God's word, that you ought not to take your own life. On an individual level, I'm not speaking about a soldier or a government official or whatever. On a personal level, one of the core commandments is that we do not murder as God's followers. We do not take life. And that includes one's own life. That includes the king of Israel's life. We don't take life. We are made in God's image, every human being, young, old, rich, poor, soldier, non-soldier, near the end of life, at the beginning of life, We are made in his image. And I've never been in battle. I've never been in war. So I can't speak to this existentially. I can't speak to this from my own experience of watching someone who has been shot with arrows and is suffering. So I can understand where he's coming from. But God's word is clear that we are not to take life. And so I think this is part of why his armor bearer doesn't do what he is supposed to do to the king especially, to the king especially. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says to us, no matter what kind of physical pain we're in, no, no matter what kind of spiritual pain we are in, that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out. The way out is not taking your life. God says, I will provide the way out for this temptation that you are feeling to not continue in pain and suffering, whether it's physical or spiritual. will always provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. This is what I believe God's word would say to us and to anyone who is in this situation. On another level, we can understand when your body is full of arrows that you want this to be over and you don't want the enemy to be involved. So that's through verse 6. Let's come back to our text here, verse 7. Again, it's at the end where this passage is going to relate to us mostly, what I want to draw out mostly today. But verse 7, when the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. This is a low point in Israel's history. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa 
they cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. This is a dark, dark season in the history of God's people. It is a tragedy. And it reminds the reader of 1 Samuel of another event. 1 Samuel chapter 17 on the screen. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion, Goliath, was dead, uh, they fled. At the end here of chapter 31, we have a massive reversal of what was going on in 1 Samuel 17. In 1 Samuel 17, the superpower was oppressing the weaker power, and nobody would stand up to them. And this young man, David, did. He stood up, and he takes out Goliath. I'm bringing that up because it is a reminder of the reader of 1 Samuel of the brutal practices in ancient warfare of taking someone's head, and then what they do here, they put the bodies um, on their temples and, and parade them, and they're hanging there, and it is just dreadful and tragic and very, very discouraging. So, the book does not end, First Samuel, which in the original Hebrew Bible, there isn't a division here. First and Second Samuel are just one book, but in our Bibles, in our English Bibles, this is uh, the end of, of First Samuel. And I am thankful that it doesn't end on this discouraging note at verse 10. Having the armor and the body up on a wall in the territory of the Philistines. So let's look at the next couple verses, this last paragraph. Verse 11. When the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard of what the Philistines had done to Saul, Saul with his deplorable resume, all their valiant men journeyed through the night to Beth Shan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Beth Shan and went to Jabesh where they burned them. I don't know. Anybody pulled an all-nighter here recently? <laughs> it's not fun. Uh, I mean, I haven't done it in a long time. And I think uh, occasionally maybe I've done it having fun and celebrating, but generally it's been to study. Here, the people of Jabesh-Gilead pull an all-nighter for who? For Saul, who's dead. For Jonathan. For the boys' bodies who are hanging in enemy territory. These valiant men journey through the night to go and get the bodies and the armor down to capture them. How is this going on? One commentator writes this. He says, in its final chapter, 1 Samuel thus ends on a high note by putting aside allusions to Saul's dark and clouded days. It closes with pathos, with a memory of Saul's finest hour. What was his finest hour? Who were the men of Jabesh-Gilead? Why did they do this? Look with me on the screen back to chapter 11. The Spirit of God came upon Saul 
as a young man. Saul's life trajectory is the very opposite of what you and I want in our lives. We want to grow increasingly to love God with all of our heart, soul, minds, and strength. And near the end of our lives to be yielded to the Spirit and to be close to God. Saul began his adult life that way and he just gets further and further from the Lord until he takes his own life here. But back in chapter 11, the Spirit of God was upon him when he heard these words, and he became very angry. And this is one of the rare occasions in the Bible where a man is angry and it's good. He's angry because this other powerful group of people has come and has taken out this Israelite community, Jabesh Gilead. And Saul, with the Spirit of God upon him, hears about it, and he says, this, this can't be. This, this is wrong. For the strong to oppress the weak this way. Continuing in chapter 11, remembering Saul's early days, the next morning Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp at the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites, this this power who had taken out Jabesh Gilead who was weak. Until the heat of the day, those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So at the end of chapter 31, near the midpoint of the Hebrew Bible, book of the Bible, Samuel, that we call here 1 Samuel, these men heard what was going on and they remembered Saul's coming to the rescue of their town that was in jeopardy of being overrun. So the mutual human condition that you and I have when we read the Bible We're not reading the Bible primarily to get knowledge. We're not reading the Bible to win some kind of um, contest of, of, uh, what's the quiz called? Yeah, whatever. You know, the the, the games we play, uh, Bible trivia or whatever. That, That is not what it is about. The reason we read the Bible is to become like Christ, to change. What we need from the Bible is a work of the Spirit related to the truth of God's Word so that we have His grace to change, you and me. And God wants us to think about how do we honor the life of someone whose life has been deplorable. The men of Jabesh Gilead pull an all-nighter and they go and they risk themselves to take back his body. Now before I... I I put my point up here. Coming back to the text, at the very end of verse 12, it says, uh, after they got uh, the body of Saul and his sons, uh, they burned them. This is a very controversial phrase here, a a practice that's really almost uh, almost found nowhere. And that is because the human body among God's people, particularly ancient Israel, is, is sacred. The human body, the human person, is, is sacred. It, we're, we're made in his image. You don't, the very reason they pulled an all-nighter and went is because this body, even though the soul is gone from the, from the people, this body represents our God who made every human being in his image. And this is not right. This is not good. That physical body is, is, is important and sacred. So, so there's a lot of debate. What, what, what is going on with the burning here? And I think 
the, the most basic or simplest explanation here is that the bodies, this is gross, but the bodies were at this point so deteriorated that they needed to be burned before they were buried. The smell, the decomp decomposition. So this is something really unusual in ancient Israel, but they, they burned the body out of honor. What does this have to do with your life and my life? We honor the part of a person's life that is honorable after that person is gone. We leave the secret judgments to God, and what these men have done is valiant, is beautiful. They know what kind of person Saul was. They also know that he saved their town and their community and their family members in his early days. They didn't have a works-based response to how we should treat Saul and his sons in death. They had a God-centered response, and they honored the part of the person's life that is honorable. A second thing is we honor God who created the person in his image. I've already alluded to that. I'm talking about how you and I honor someone who lived their life who more or less ignored God and his word. And let's be honest, that is a lot of people that we know. That is a lot of people. They, they were, we don't know people who've done the kinds of things that Saul has done, but we know a lot of people who, like Saul, have disregarded the covenant-keeping God, the creator and sustainer of the universe and his word, and they honor him. In fact, they risk their lives to go and get the bodies and rescue them. Verse 13 is the last verse. They took their bones and buried them, the bones of Saul and his sons, under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. They grieved. They fasted. So we have an all-nighter, and we have fasting for seven days, which in general means they didn't eat any food for seven days in order to grieve what has happened to Israel, what has happened to Saul, what has happened to the sons of Saul, and to have a hunger for God. This is quite a response to the death of someone who lived a mostly, but not entirely, deplorable life. They honored God who created Saul and his sons in their image, in, in his image, in God's image. Well, in our last few minutes, when we read the Old Testament, we also want to connect it to the New Testament in the Gospel. So what I want to do in the last few minutes here is ask the question, well, okay, so this text is dealing with honoring someone who has ignored God's word, has ignored the reality of God in their life uh, after they're dead. But what about when they are alive? How do we honor God relating to someone who has ignored God or God's word? And I want to suggest, I want to say that we honor that person by communicating gospel hope to that person. And I want to show you an example briefly of Jesus encountering someone who not completely, and, and almost no one ignores God completely, but generally is ignoring God um, in her life, an interaction of Jesus with this Samaritan woman. Most of you are familiar with the story. I'm just going to put a few of the verses on the screen. And I'm 
going here, connecting the Old Testament with the New, so that we can answer the question, how do we honor a life of someone who isn't following the Lord Jesus, who isn't under the authority of God's Word? So it's fascinating in the beginning of John chapter 4, this sentence, he had to pass through Samaria. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. There is a lot in this phrase, and many of you know this background, but Jews in the first century were essentially, the leaders especially, Pharisees and Sadducees, were racists or tribalists. And they looked down, way down on other people groups, including the Sumerians, who they referred to as half-breeds. They looked down upon them so much that they would not walk in their territory, and they wouldn't walk in their territory because the religious leaders had set up rules, not rules that are in Scripture, but they had set up their own rules that if you come into contact with a Samaritan, then you are disqualified to come to temple worship. You are unclean. That's how terrible these people are, these half-breeds. So we read in John 4, this Jew, Jesus, who happens to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world, had to pass through Samaria. So this is going to get the Jewish reader in the first century's attention. We don't pass through Samaria. We don't go in those neighborhoods after dark. We don't interact with those people. You stay away from that territory. And that came from the religious leaders. So Jesus had to go there. He wanted to go there. He intentionally went there. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, according to how they recorded time, kept time in Jewish time. They called that the sixth hour. We would say it was noon. It was high noon. Uh, It was hot. And, and, and the well was there, and we don't have time to go through the whole chapter, or just a, a few more verses I'm going to put up here, but just a, a little background. The disciples have gone to get food, and Jesus is alone. He's alone, and he's found his way to a well in Samaria. Jews don't do this, but Jesus has done it. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water at noon. Again, in the first century, cultural background here again, Women didn't go to get water. It was generally women who went and got water, and they generally did it at dawn and at dusk when it was not hot. So this woman is there at noon. This is an unusual time. So we have an extraordinary person, a Jew, a rabbi, a man, at a Samaritan well, and we have a woman, a Samaritan there, and Jesus says to her, give me a drink. So you can be unclean for just walking in the area and being near these people. You're disqualified from worship according to the false doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And Jesus says, give me a drink. This would involve Jesus holding her cup. This would involve Jesus putting his lips on her cup. This is unthinkable. Give me a drink. I am bringing this passage up because God's word is written to change you and me. God's word is written not to satisfy your curiosity about whether Saul is in heaven or hell or not, but it's written to help us become someone that we are not. And Jesus is modeling how we honor someone's life who has a disregard for God's word. He has gone out of his way into a neighborhood that his parents and his grandparents and the religious leaders would have said, you don't go into that neighborhood. He has gone into the neighborhood and asked for a drink. He has violated ceremonial laws. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, she knows 
how, what's going on. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? And then the author gives us this parenthetical phrase, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The author is giving us the cultural background here, the author, John the Apostle. They don't deal with each other, let alone ask for a drink. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water referring not to, you know, she's caught in the physical realm, he's in the spiritual realm in his conversation. And living water here is referring to the grace that you and I need or the work of the Holy Spirit or to the Holy Spirit himself. What you and I need as we come to God's word, whether we're reading it alone or hearing it preached, I need living water. I need the Holy Spirit to help me have peace that doesn't come from my job or my kids or success. I need living water from which I will never thirst again. This is what Jesus has, and you would be asking me about that. He's saying, if you knew who it was that is speaking to you. So he says to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Now, this is where that little phrase, uh, what would Jesus do and what we do, uh, doesn't really work out, right? Because Jesus knows all things. He knows her story. He knows her situation, and we don't. So it doesn't really work to to literally follow what Jesus does here. But the principles and general framework of what Jesus does here is to instruct us how to relate to people who don't really care for God's word. And like Saul, their theme song would be, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do whatever I want. So defining marriage in your own way, in your own terms, is nothing new. God's design for marriage is one man and one woman for life. And this woman has not been following that. The details of how she wasn't following it doesn't really matter. She has disobeyed God's word. She is not living with her husband. She's living with someone else. This is not good for her. This is not good for the woman. So Jesus first talks to her and loves her and drinks from her cup and shatters the barriers, and cares for her, and talks with her, and then it would not be loving to leave her in the situation that she is in, but shows her there is a preferable way to live. God has told us how to live, and we are to be under the authority of his word, and you are not living that way. So he is calling her to live according to his word, so that she might have joy, It's not going to come moving from man to man to man to man or flip it around. It's not going to come to a man moving from woman to woman to woman or whatever creative permutation you want to have on that. It's not going to come that way. God has designed us to live a certain way. And he has called us as his followers to honor lives, even lives that ignore God and his word. We see in today's passage the people of Jabesh Gilead doing that 
And we see in John chapter 4, Jesus honoring a life. What happens with this woman? Many of you know the end of the story with the woman in John 4. She leaves her cup, her utensils. She leaves everything there, which these things were expensive and valuable. So that communicates something very strong to the reader. That she has shifted. And when she first got to that well, she's all focused on on water. It's probably a very hot day. But she has come to see that Jesus is the Messiah. And she has placed him as Lord over her life. She has put herself uh, with God's word over her like this instead of just just discounting it as nothing. And I'm going to do life my own way. And she's made this discovery. And what does she do? She runs not to give everybody water. She runs to tell everybody, I've talked to the Messiah. I've talked to the one who can bring us joy and peace and living water. This is God's word to help us learn how to honor lives who do not honor God. Now, we may or may not have a happy ending like this, but I want to close today by saying, when I say we may not have a happy ending, I'm referring to your and my encounters with people who are not following God. It's, it's uncommon for them to run away and become an evangelist immediately, as the woman at the well did. That may happen. What happens in that person's life is really not up to you. It is up to the Spirit working. But what is up to you is if you care enough to go and have the conversation and do the equivalent of drinking out of the cup of the person who needs your love and care, who needs the grace of God in their lives, who needs to live a different way. And it may take a long time to have the conversation about whatever it is that needs to change in that person's life. But I want to end today with the challenge for us to pray about honoring people by communicating gospel hope. That's what Jesus did. That's the phrase that I put on what Jesus did. He gave her hope for a new way to live, and she embraced that hope. That is part of how we love lives who ignore God and ignore his word. Let's bow our heads and ask him to help us to do that. Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your spirit. We know, Lord, that we are not going to have the kind of power and authority and insight that Jesus has. But you have given us an opportunity in life to honor lives, especially lives that have not been lived well, that have not been God-centered lives. And I pray today as we connect with the hearts of these men that pulled an all-nighter from Jabesh Gilead, as we connect with the heart of our Lord and Savior Jesus, who cared for the Samaritan woman, who went into the forbidden neighborhood, who didn't care about stigmas and rituals that have nothing to do with the Word of God, but cares for people. Lord, help us to care and to bring gospel hope to those in our spheres of influence that so desperately need it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.